Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Store. This is a podcast for Southeast Utah. I'm your host, Oren Stainbrook, and my guest today is Jeff Richens, who is the district manager for the Price River Water Improvement District. Thanks for talking to me today, Jeff. Sure. So first of all, I just want to establish some background and context for this conversation. Part of this is because I myself am quite ignorant to uh, everything that's going on. So I first of all, just want to know, can you explain to us what is the Price River Water Improvement District, or as uh, some people uh, shorten it, Pry-Wide? Is this a government agency, a private corporation? Is it a publicly owned utility? What is it? Sure. So we are in in the Utah Code, Section 17B, it's called Special District, which means we are a government entity. We're set up under the codes of the state of Utah. Originally, back in 1959, 1960, we were created by Carbon County and given our independence under that Section 17B. So we have our own board of trustees. Uh, we're not owned by shareholders. We are truly a government entity. And because of that, we can levy fees and we can collect property taxes. Um, we have three revenue streams, which are water use fees, sewer use fees, and uh, then property taxes. We were put together back in, as I mentioned, 1959 or created 1959 because the valley here started to grow and Helper City had their springs and wells, which were a water source, and Price City had springs and wells. Price City also had a small water treatment plant, but Wellington City and the unincorporated areas had no water resources. Uh, and so we were created to find or make water resources available for culinary use. Now we don't confuse us with Carbon Water Conservancy District they are tasked with actually creating sources. Um, so they administer, for example, the dam at Schofield Reservoir. They're tasked with finding other places where they can put reservoirs and capture water, those kinds of things. We take water out of the river, we treat it, we ship it to people's homes or businesses, and then we collect the sewer back, and then we treat it again and put it back in the river down below Welling the town of Wellington. So. Uh, we joke we are the original um, environmentalist so um, as i mentioned we were created in 1959 by the late 60s though uh, there was no sewer treatment everybody's sewer if you didn't have a septic tank you were in a city the city collected those that sewer in their sewer lines and it went to the river and and this was done across the country and so the federal government uh, created the Clean Water Act, which is different than the Safe Drinking Water Act. Clean Water Act um, controlled just the rivers in general and how trying to control the pollution that was going into the rivers. And so the federal government said, oh yes, we are not going to give you guys any money for anything, even drinking water, until you get that sewer problem figured out and taken care of. So in 1970 and 1971, we got together with the cities. We put in a, um, a valley-wide sewer collection system. It actually starts up in the old town of Castlegate because that used to be a town in those days, and we actually collected sewer way up there, which is about three miles north of Helper. comes down through the valley, picks up Helper, picks up all the areas like 
Spring Glen and Carbonville and Price City and down through the valley to Wellington and goes to the wastewater treatment plant. And so that plant has been in operation since 1971. 1972 was the year that the Clean Water Act, it was the cutoff. We had to be in service by then. We actually haven't been in the drinking water business until 1978. That's when we started. And so, we, again, we had to take care of the sewer problem before we could go into the water problem. Since then, we've been developing and, and gathering uh, water shares in Schofield Reservoir so we would have a volume that we can treat and ship to people's homes. And that's what Price River Water does. We take water out of the river, we clean it up, turn it into drinking water quality, and then we ship it to people's homes and businesses. We collect it back in the form of sewer. We clean it up again at the wastewater plant, put it back in the river for the people downstream to use. Wow. Thank you for explaining that. It's an amazing service. And the 70s were not that long ago. So in the 70s, everybody's sewage was just going straight back into the Price River. And Well... And not just in Utah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Back in the early 70s. So in 1971 is when that wastewater plant went into bit. I remember as a kid, so I grew up in Price. I remember as a kid, we would ice skate on the Price River. And there were pipelines you stayed away from because it was warm water and it would melt the ice. Wow. So you had to stay away from certain areas if you were ice skating on the river. And it smelled probably. Oh, yes. Pretty bad. No, probably about it. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. It's just things that, you know, my generation takes for granted that we've never even questioned or thought about. Okay, so 5960, that wasn't that long ago either. How were places like where I live, Kenilworth, getting water before it was being piped up there? So some of them, some of those small private water companies were connected to Price City System. Hmm. Um, or some place, some people actually had cisterns at their home and so they would go to a place they could fill up a water tank and drive it out and put it in their cistern hmm. uh, a lot of my friends when i was in high school this is the late 70s they would haul water their parents would move 500 gallons of water every other day and put it in their cistern i remember one of my friends came to school in high school so this was late 70s and um they were a little green around the gills, not because they were sick, but because they had found a dead squirrel in their cistern. They didn't know how long it would have been in there, but just the thought of having that in their drinking water was a little more than they wanted to think about. Yeah. When you put it like that, it makes the the price that we pay for this service seem really minimal. Like, And, and you know, you can make that argument, um, and there is an article that just came out few days ago in the I want to say KSL um, and they were talking how water in the West is really too inexpensive hmm. and they were listing I think they said St. George um, has the highest water rates and our water rates are lower than, than that and I think in Salt Lake and Utah County and stuff like that they're they're lower than St. George as well but they were just saying that they were using St. George as, as an example that um, we live in a desert and water ought to be more expensive and and that's all well and good but that's not what our water our, our, our ratepayers want they everybody me included we want those services as inexpensive as possible yeah and it doesn't matter if it's water and sewer power natural gas groceries gas for my vehicle i don't want to say well you know this is really a convenience and i would be willing to pay more for it 
we want it as low as possible. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, we're going to dive into that. I want to explore this as much as possible. Uh, but first, can you also explain what does the, I'm going to just say pry wide, it's easier to refer to the, the district as you sometimes refer to it. Uh, not to be confused with the school district or other districts, but the, the water improvement district. So the pry wide board, what is that about? What's what's its purpose and how does it interface with the district itself? Okay. So um, the way boards are set up, they are the legislative body for an organization. Our board is made up of a representative from each city that we serve plus one elected, or plus um, elected members from the county at large, but we have to have an odd number. Uh, so, for example, we have three cities. Now, when Castlegate was a city, they had a member on the board as well. And so we had four representatives from cities, and we had one elected. But the state code, again, 17B, says it'll be an odd number, and it'll be at least one more than the numbers of number of cities which you serve. So... As an example, there are districts up on the Wasatch Front that have nine or 11 board members because they have nine cities that they serve, and then they have to go to the next odd number, which gives them two elected officials. If they have eight cities, they have one elected member because then they go to the next odd number, which is nine. So currently we have um, Rick Davis, which represents Price City. He's on the Price City City Council. We have Barney Zoss, who's from Wellington. He's on the Wellington City Council. And we have Lenise Peterman, who is serving as the mayor of Helper. The cities don't have to appoint an elected official, but many times they do. Currently elected at large, we have Scott Jensen and Keith Cox. They both live out in the county areas. They're both on, they were both on the ballot when their election term came up. They were voted in by the people. Hmm. Are those elected positions, should they be from the unincorporated, unincorporated area or should one of them be or does it not matter? They're both required to be outside of city limits. Okay. Great. Thanks for explaining that. Okay. So let's dive into the heart of the matter. The reason that I'm here today is because there was a recent proposed tax increase and I attended the public hearing that was, I don't know, two or three weeks ago. Uh, couple of hours, a lot of pop public comments, uh, got a little bit heated at times. There were some passionate people um, who were a little upset and uh, resisting this increase. So I want to talk about the uh, the increase as I understand it, and, and you can tell me if I'm, I'm right or if I'm missing something, and then we can use that to just jump off and, and discuss this issue in, in general. Um, I feel like there's a lot of places we could go from here. But so here's how I understand it. Um, and I, this is based off what I saw in the newspaper and the notice that I received in the mail for my, my property. So the current tax rate is uh, that the, the river water district collects through the county, correct, is point, it's 0.000514% of your taxable property value. That's what the percentage uh, is? Yeah, that's the number we use. I, I don't know if it's a percentage. It's it's 0 0.000514, whatever that is of. Yeah. Okay. And the proposed rate for next year 
is was uh, at the time at least 0 0.000790 so that's an increase of 0 0.000276 and it feels kind of silly to be like having to talk in such like minuscule numbers but that's that's just what it is so uh, to put it into terms that are easier to understand I'm going to use my property as an example my property's market value, according to my tax notice this year, is 173460 That seems like a pretty kind of average middle-of-the-road property value for around here, I think. So my tax this year for uh, Prywide was $49.04, which again, I feel like is really not much considering I get fresh, clean drinking water straight to my house, and I don't have to worry about my sewage. That, that's pretty awesome. Uh, but I, I agree with you. You know, we want it to be as affordable as possible. Okay, so I currently pay $49.04. If the proposed increase is approved, it would go up next year to $75.37, a difference of $26.33. So, that's that's just as an example. Uh, some people's property values are much higher than that, obviously. Um, there's also, it's different for businesses, but uh, at least for me, if I divide that increase $26 and change by 365 days in a year, just to see it in an, another way, we're talking about an increase of seven cents a day. For businesses, uh, the example in the newspaper that I saw was for a $300,000 business, I guess that that's like just the market value of the business. I'm not sure how that's even calculated or assessed, but a $300,000 business would increase from $154.20. So it's, uh, you know, somewhat higher than the residential tax to $237.13 a year. So an $82.93 a year increase, which comes out to about 23 cents a day for a $300,000 business. So I wanted to just first ask you, and is that all, well, is that all correct? Did I get that mostly right? Does it sound? Yeah, it sound, I, I'm obviously I, <laughs> I wasn't part of your calculations, but it sounds right. Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, and I think it's important to just, you know, kind of clarify that this is a, what do you call it? Like a pass through taxation where like, the county isn't responsible for the tax rate that is set by the district, or is the tax rate actually set by the board? So the tax rate is set by our board because it's the legislative body. Yeah. If we were part of the county, if the commission was our governing board, then they would set that tax. For example, there is an, a dependent district. Most people don't know that there's a difference, but so the... Recreation Transportation Special Service District. That is a dependent district. So they all they do have a board, yes, but all of their government services are done by the county commission. Ours don't go by the county commission. And so there are times when people call and they're, you know, and they have something they want to complain about. And and they said, well, we'll go to the commission and, and see what they have to say about it. And it's like, oh, okay, but there's not a lot they can do. It's It's this board that sits here that, if we're not doing our jobs, they're the people you need to talk to. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, yeah that's, our board set its own rate. That's a good example of just why I'm trying to do this and educate sure. myself and others. Because I think there's so many, you know, misconceptions like that or just people don't understand, aren't clear on how things work. And 
So just just to cl clear that up for some folks, you know, could save some confusion in the future, save, uh, you know, the, the county commissioner some phone calls about the district and vice versa. So, yeah, anything like that that comes to mind that you feel like is a common misconception or misinformation, I think is a good good time to try to clarify. Well, so you brought up some of the people who came for the public hearing, and I think it was a bit of an eye-opener to them because they were... They were complaining about a few years ago when the county imposed the municipal services tax and it was a new tax item and it was a pretty good increase and after the board realized what they were talking about they said um we're not carbon county and, and we're, we're only talking about one line and so when people saw oh there's a 53.7 percent increase in your property tax they were thinking, I already paid $1,200 or $1,000 or $1,500. Now they're going to give me a 50% increase. No, it's only on one item on your tax line. Yeah, It's not the whole thing. And, and then there were some people who complained about the property values and how they were assessed. And how can their assessments go up so high? And again, we're not the county. We don't set the assessments. We don't set the values of the properties. Mm-hmm. Um, some people ask, well, if the property values went up, how come that doesn't bring more money to the district? Different whole different uh, conversation. And that's because, so the state of Utah um, has set a certified tax rate. And so as values go up, um, our revenue, or our percentage, I should say, our revenue has to stay very much the same. And so our, our taxing percentage drops. Uh, in the meeting, I explained to everyone in attendance that 19 years ago, our board set this tax rate at 0, 0.00080, which is the maximum we can do by code. And over that 19 years, it has taken its way down. It has dropped a little by little every year, a little by little every year, until now we find ourselves 19 years later where our revenues have stayed flat because the tax rate has dropped, but our costs have not stayed flat. I don't know anybody's costs who have stayed flat over 19 years. From, yeah. from wages to benefits to power to gas to building maintenance, anything has not stayed flat. And that's why we proposed an increase yeah makes sense to me i mean just like you you just outlined it's you need to pay for all the things that go into maintaining the district and the services it provides and you can't control what all of those things cost and so it's not that you guys are trying to you know increase your what you're doing or build new buildings or hire more people or you know you're you're spending wastefully it's that you're just trying to maintain what you've always done and the cost of all those things goes up but um that's another i'm glad you're kind of clarifying all these things because that's another thing that's just sort of hard to wrap your head around especially for somebody like me i'm a visual learner so it, it helps a lot if i can just see it written out or like diagrammed but to just talk through it it's a little bit confusing but yeah, so just to reiterate, make sure I understand this. So, so entities like yours, like the the district board, um, 
they come up with the the dollar amount that they need to to run and the they also implement a, a maximum tax percentage but the actual percentage that's used fluctuates each year depending on the property values uh, because they the math just needs to come out to make sure that you're getting the revenue that you the budget ask calls for yeah that, that that's pretty close um so the reason we settled on well two things the reason we settled on well we're going to take it up to point or to seven nine we'll just call it seven nine mm -hmm. um is because we knew we were going to have this discussion and the board wanted to be able to hear what people thought now that doesn't mean they adopted the seven nine level i mean that's that's almost the maximum because they wanted to have the input um but it gives us a little bit of increase in our our revenues based on our ta property taxes and so what we will do and what we did for those the majority of those 19 years is we build up a, a reserve account so because we knew at some point in the future we would have lean years we would have some years where our our revenues were not going to keep pace with our expenditures and so it, and it's kind of how you run your household right um when you have a little extra money you put it in the bank and you say okay at some point i'm going to need to pull that out and so it's our rainy day fund and so that's what we do and we have now come to the point where we were expending all of our rainy day fund and we needed to do something and so we've actually been talking about this for a few years and our auditor who's been our auditor for a number of years he brought up year after year now for i think four years go running we need to do something we are depleting our reserves hmm. and we need to do something for this they call it the the 10 fund or the governmental operations fund and the only way to do that is you cut your your expenditures which i feel like we've cut pretty much what we can or you increase your revenues mm -hmm. so the tax rate percentage does it automatically adjust each year based on property market values I, unless it, you intervene it's my understanding that yes okay because the state has adopted that certified tax rate and that's so if you have a huge increase in your property values, that's, you know, that's bad for the homeowners, but our tax rate doesn't go up with that. I mean, our tax revenues don't go up with that. They stay pretty much flat. Mm -hmm. They may go up a few thousand, but not hundreds of thousands. Okay. Um, not even tens of thousands. They can go up a little bit. And then as it goes back down, or if, and it, I don't know that it would ever go down. I, I'm sure values fluctuate into the negative mm -hmm. for what they were from year to year. Um, and that's one reason why the state of Utah put that formula in place is because it would protect not only the state, but any government entity that was able to collect property tax is your revenues, your expected revenues from that tax, from that fund source stays relatively level. Right. So when the board sees that more tax revenue is needed, they are actually coming up with an, an in increased dollar amount, but that is what translates to them needing to manually adjust the, the, the tax, tax rate. percentage mm -hmm. rate. Okay. 
I think I'm, I'm pretty clear on that. Cool. So uh, you kind of touched on why, why you think people were so upset about this. Some of it was just misunderstanding and they were directing their frustration maybe in at the wrong place. Any other reason that you didn't mention already why you think people were upset about this or protesting it? Well, I think, um, I think I would like to just give a little perspective. Yeah. So we sent out almost 10,000 notices. You got one in your tax notice. Mm -hmm. Every single person who has a property tax got a notice. Um, and we had to pay to have those sent out. If you have three homes, you got three notices. And we had... 50 to 60 people? Well, we, we only have 40 chairs. Okay, yeah. And 10 of those were filled with my employees who were interested in hearing what the comments were. Hmm. So we had about 25, call it 30 at the high end, people who were here to address the board. Hmm. Out of 10,000? Out of a lot. <laughs> wow, okay, yeah. And so, well, I'm not discounting that they have real concerns and real problems, stuff like that. Um, I don't know that it was a, a big enough sample set to say, hey, everybody was up in arms. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Makes um, sense. But th at the same token, I also understand their concerns are their concerns and they are real concerns of theirs. Enough so that they came out in the dark, in the cold, and spoke their piece and got their name in our records that they were against it or whatever else. But, um, yeah, sometimes I think there are some people who just don't want to have any increases on anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So very relatively few people who came out, but uh, on the flip side of that there, they could have also represented the feelings of, People that didn't show up, Whole groups, yeah, um, who maybe were similarly upset or frustrated, but just, you know, either they couldn't make it or they just decided like, ah, oh, whatever, I'll, I'll just pay it. Um, sure. But, and, and I've had phone calls since the meeting, and people were saying, so what was decided? And they, they just didn't want to come out in the cold, there were the dark or whatever. And, and that was another question: Why was it held so late? Well, number one, we have to hold it after a certain hour, and we held it on a regular night for board meeting. And it was right after the business of the board was done so we could spend as much time as the public wanted. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I want to first ask, just going back in time a little bit, you know, why if this uh, has been the, the tax rate percentage has been falling for 19, 20 years and, and the revenue not keeping up with what was going to be sustainable and also allow you this surplus that would give you a little bit of wiggle room to be socking some away into this rainy day fund. I assume people have been aware of this this whole time. So why do you think that uh, they've waited so long? Why 19 years without um, doing this sooner? Okay. So one of the things I brought before the board is I got a list from the state tax commission of all the entities who had a they call it truth in taxation. You have to have that kind of a, a presentation before you can raise your property tax. And in 2023, cause, and then you have entities that are fiscal year and entities that are calendar year. 
But of all the entities in 2023, I think there were 97. And there was a different group. Well, I can't really say it, a different group in 2022 and 2021 and 2020. They went back four years and gave me their information. But I learned something in reviewing that information. Um, a, some do it every year. In fact, on that list, there were a couple of different entities across the state, and they hold a truth in taxation. They bump their rate, uh, property tax rate up to the maximum every year. So when it slips, mm -hmm. they take it right back up. Ah. And our board just doesn't want to deal with that kind of consistent going back to the public say, oh, we're going to take another 10 bucks. We're going to take another 10 bucks. We're going to take another 10 bucks every year. If we can do it one time and live on that for as long as possible, that was the last time we got to live 19 years. Maybe this time we'll get to live 12 years on that difference. I don't know. Hmm. Interesting. So, so it, you as a consumer, you as one of my customers, would you rather us come back for an extra little bit every year or would you rather us wait and do, I think you said your difference was like $25. Mm-hmm after 19 years. Yeah, well, thank you for asking me. I really appreciate it. It's nice to be able to give my own opinion because I, I, I do have an opinion. I've, I've been thinking about this and I mean, just as soon as I was driving home from that hearing, I was kind of wondering about this and my personal feeling um, is that I, I think that doing it every year would be better. Um, I think you make a habit of it. People know what to expect. It's like maybe you do have to have that this conversation and this fight like a couple of times till people get it. But once <laughs> it's understood, then it's like, okay, yeah, this is just what needs to happen. We're not going to go back and fight it every year. Sure. Um, I think it just requires kind of some like a public education campaign maybe. Uh, but I, I personally think that would be better because, you know, like what we saw and, and again, who knows how many people were really upset about this versus how many people just intuitively or uh, understand and, and are on board with it, the, the once in 20 years or once in 10 years increase. But I feel like there's maybe a little bit more of a risk of people just having this amnesia about, about it. It's like if it's been 20 years, I mean, some people haven't been um, a homeowner, a homeowner that That's long. Right. Some people haven't lived here that long. Uh, maybe a, a lot of people like fall into those categories. Sure. So that's my personal feeling, but I mean, I'm, I know very sure. little about all this, so that's partly why I'm here. And I will probably be the first to confess that the reason why I don't like to do it every year is personal, or maybe I even should say selfish, because if you, well, the hard costs, because you have to advertise it no. um, so many times, and it has to be advertised not only in the newspapers and the public meeting notice website and the... Utah taxpayer, anyway, all these different things, right? That all includes man hours, and but there's a cost of sending out um, advertisement or uh, notices in everybody's mail and stuff. So we spent about two thousand dollars plus man hours, yeah, to do this. And so I'm thinking, well, if we have to do that same lift every year, mm. I just assume not do it every year. Yeah, just because it took a lot of my time. So, yeah, that makes sense, but. You know, if it's better, I get, you know, it becomes part of your job. Yeah. Well, that's a good reason. 
Um, okay, so yeah, two thousand dollars just for postage, or or maybe more. Um, so let's. I'd love to put the that expense uh, in in perspective in the context of what is the overall budget like how many millions of dollars or whatever are we even talking about? So with this proposed increase approved, the property tax budgeted revenue would, according to this notice, increase by 53.78% above last year's tax revenue. So can you tell us what was the old budgeted revenue amount in dollars and how much would that be if this increase had gone through? Uh, Roughly, just um, ballpark. Or, you know, what is it? What's the budget? What does it cost to run the district? I, I, well, the whole district, including our bond debts, and is a little over seven million dollars. Okay. Um, I can't. I don't remember the number. If we went to the full amount to the the zero 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 seven nine, what was approved by the board was zero 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 six six two, and I believe the additional revenue comes pretty close to two hundred and sixty thousand. Oh, that doesn't seem like very much, but okay, yeah. But that's what you know. So if it had gone to the full amount, it probably would have been more like four, four fifty, four eighty thousand, which is more. But um, again, go back to the conversation of doing it every year. So if you had a a five percent interest or in- increase, sorry, a five percent increase each year, and it still cost you two thousand dollars, mm-hmm. now you'd be making. You know, twenty five thousand dollars, and it costing you two. Mm-hmm. So it's almost ten percent of your your increased revenue you're putting out to to gather that money in. I don't know that that's necessarily a good investment. Yeah, good point. Uh, so okay, so you answered one of my next questions, which was what happened? What did the board decide to do? What was was the increase approved? You said they decided to uh, take it back down to. Six something? Yeah, so remember our current rate is 0.000514, and they approved the increase to go up to 0.000662. And the original proposed amount was was 790, so it's about halfway between. Yeah, yeah. we we figured instead of going to 53.7, it went about 28%. So it's a little more than half, but not much. Okay. Well, that's a nice compromise. Uh, I think everybody who was here, at least, would I would assume would be really grateful and appreciative that you heard them and uh, made an adjustment based on their their feedback. I, I think it's important to note, though, that you know, an, an entity that goes in and they say, "Well, we're going to adjust it to this level," if they don't if they don't start out where they can go. And they only go part way. They can't go above that. Once they advertise, they can't go above it mm-hmm. unless they start the process over again. Yeah. Uh, well, my other idea is just just spitballing and brainstorming with you here. Like maybe there's there's also a, a compromise to be found in that that time period of sure, how it. often to update. Like do it every ten years or yeah five five years, years or figure yeah, out. Something what's what's the best uh, do a cost benefit analysis you know the, the cost of of getting the, these uh mailers out and everything where does it make sense where you you uh minimize the the damage done to and and risk risking this amnesia this uh you know just people for, forgetting and being shocked when it comes around every so often 
if you wait too long, I think you, there's a more of a risk of that happening. But if you do it too often, then you're it's it's irresponsible to be spending the the money that you're you're raising in this way, like you said. Sure. So, okay, it's really interesting to get a get the full picture here. Um, so, I want to also just try to make sense of the 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 budget itself. So you said that. The operating budget is somewhere in the ballpark of seven million, but the tax revenue, I guess, must be much, much smaller than that. If uh, the fifty percent increase was going to result in roughly half a million dollars increased sure. revenue, so can you tell us where where is all this money for the seven million dollar budget coming from? Is are there grants? Is there like state funding? That's, no, we, getting... we so we have three revenue streams. We, oh, that's right. Yeah, the, the sewer our, and water fees. Yep, our okay. water use fees, our sewer use fees, and then the property taxes. I see. Okay. So what percentages roughly do you think um, are, are each of those? Well, so um, some people would say, well, my water bill is always so expensive. <laughs> but we we only receive water fees from uh, our retail customers, which are yourself. You're a retail customer in Kenilworth. The Price River Valley, those are all retail customers. Wellington City, they're a wholesale customer, which means they take care of their own distribution system inside the state limits. Hmm. And so they pay a little bit different rate than our regular customers. That's where the water revenue comes from, is the people who actually use the drinking water from the district. We don't, I guess I should say, we, not we don't, rarely do we sell water to helper. And then Price City and the district, we have an exchange agreement so I mentioned Price City Springs and Wells, and then they have a small treatment plant. <clears throat> so they have enough in the wintertime to supply all of their needs, and then they have excess water. And they ship that water to us. Because if they didn't ship it to us, it would go down the river, and that's a waste of resources. Hmm. So in the summer months, when they don't have enough capacity to meet all, their, all the demands of their customers, we give water back to them hmm. because our water treatment plant is, is much larger. And so we can treat more water and we satisfy all of our customers. We are the sole source for Wellington City. And then we also give water to Price City as they need it. It's also a good um, partnership because there are some times, for example, when the reservoir is hard to treat. For example, you've, you've been here long enough, you've heard about blue-green algae in Schofield Reservoir. Well, in our water treatment plant, we have a process called ozonation. We use ozone to break down or break up those kinds of algae that create um, cyanobacteria and toxins. That's what happens with blue-green algae. Price City's treatment plant doesn't have ozone, and so it's harder for them to treat it. And so on a bad year, low water year, low, low reservoir year, we can help them out um, on a year where the river, or on a couple of days where the river is too dirty for us to treat, they help us out with water from their springs because it's pretty clear water in the first place. So we trade that back and forth. Um, the bulk of our revenue comes from the sewer fund because not only does the guy in Kenilworth pay for water and sewer, all of Price City, Helper City, Wellington City, they pay a sewer fee as well. Now it's a wholesale, but there are many more customers when you include all the cities plus our retail users. So the bulk of our revenues comes from um, the sewer fund. 
Okay. Which is a good deal or a good thing because we have taken on a couple of large bonds lately, which are sewer bonds. We had to recently, and maybe you're aware, we had to rebuild the sewer line that goes from Price City's limits down to Wellington City limits, basically along the highway. And that was a $3 million project. And then um, just recently, we're, we're just finishing up a project where EPA and the state of Utah require that we remove nutrients, phosphorus and nitrogen from the effluent that comes out of the wastewater plant. To do that, it's a, it's a whole new process. And we, we have to put in, there's chemical additions, there is a different kind of a way to treat it, but it costs, and we were able to bring that into play at about another $3 million cost. Now, those are both low-interest loans. One is at 2.5%, one's at 1%. I disagree, but the CIB, that's um, Community Impact Board, where we try to go get some funding, uh, the Water Quality Board, the Drinking Water Board, they all offer funding, but they say our rates are too low, and so they would only give us loans, not grants. Hmm. They're saying what rates are too low? Our water and sewer rates are too low. The the fees that you charge, mm -hmm. usage fees? Huh. Okay. Now, again, I would disagree. I think all of our customers would disagree, but I don't make those rules. Yeah. They have they have formulas. They call it the median adjusted gross income, and they say that our median adjusted gross income in Carbon County is too high for the amount of rates we pay. So we don't qualify for grants. We qualify for low-interest loans. Got it. So the, the tax revenue is is a relatively small piece of the pie rel relative to the the income you get from the water and sewer fees. Correct. Okay. Uh, and there's no other outside income aside from that besides loans and bonds. Yeah. So loans, you know, loans are project specific and we have to pay those back. Um, we haven't received a grant in a while. Uh, usually those are project specific as well. Mm. Um, but yeah, the property taxes that come in, they run about 15% of our budget, right? of our overall budget. Okay. So how about the expenses? There's some of the 7 million roughly budget is going to make payments on these loans and bonds. Uh, what else is in that 7 million? What, what are the biggest expenses for just maintaining the whole district? Well, like most cities um, and districts and any any kind of thing, we have aging infrastructure. So we try to replace a certain amount of our facilities. So, for example, it may be... Um, so our main water system, main water line through the system is a steel pipe. It's a tar-coated uh, um, steel lining or steel pipe. But because of that, and because we have alkaline soils, we have corrosion on the pipe. And so to protect that, uh, we put in these stations that have anodes. And the anodes are sacrificial anodes, which they degrade so that the pipe won't degrade. It's an electrolysis kind of a process. Hmm. So we've replaced a couple of those recently. Um, we're just replacing those kinds of facilities. We have to maintain. So we have um, a pump station that pumps water up to Kenilworth, a pump station that pumps water up to the Hill Subdivision, 
up to the airport, one to Bar Choice. Um, then we have sewer lift stations, and so we have to maintain those kinds of things. Uh, we have chemicals that our chemical budget, for example, at the water plant is annually about 160,000, 170,000. And at the wastewater plants, a little less than that, but not much. Um, we don't have natural gas at the water plant. And so there's one area we heat with propane and the rest of it, we heat, the rest of the plant, we heat with electric heat. Wastewater plant um, has natural gas, but because part of that process requires that we keep it at a minimum temperature of about 96 to 98 degrees. It uses a lot of natural gas. And so, you know, between power and natural gas and things like that, we have a lot of costs there. We have, and, and when I say a lot, it's not uncommon for us to pay bills to Rocky Mountain Power throughout the district of 15, 20,000 a month. Um, natural gas is going to run us about 12,000 a month. Um, we have just our regular pumps and motors and um, things that we d measure with uh, flow metering, um, dosage metering, those kinds of things. We spend annually throughout the district probably, I don't know, 50,000 to 100,000 know, on lab services um, because there are certain labs that can do certain things in the state, so we have to send them out for that. So it's just a lot of bits and pieces. And then we have 32 or 33 employees, um, and so we have their wages and their those things that are payroll-related. So we have a hard time competing with private industry for wages. Um, you, you take somebody, um, for example, I don't know, um, our starting wage here right now is seventeen thirty-five or something like that, which sounds pretty good, except for when you can make that just about anywhere. Mm -hmm. And so, what keeps them here is oh, and they can they can have a day off, or they can have a medical benefit, something like that. Yeah, you said thirty-two, thirty-three employees total uh -huh. in the district, uh -huh. and uh, are most of those people out in the field running the plants and servicing lines? Yeah, so we have. We have six people at the water treatment plant and six people at the wastewater plant. We have 11 people in the line maintenance, and those are the people who run water lines and sewer lines to and from businesses and homes. We have four people in our fleet department um, because we have trucks and, and uh, backhoes and trackhoes and dump trucks and things like that. And then we have six people in administration. Myself, we have a treasurer who does our payroll, and we we tend to multitask. So we don't have an HR director, for example. Um, our IT person not only does our computer and our website and uh, our cybersecurity, they also he also does the communications, the phones, the wireless communications from our different monitoring points in the in the valley, um, our SCADA system things like that. Uh, we have a draftsman and an inspector. I mean, that's the same person. <laughs> and then we have a guy that he reads the meters. He works a lot with our billing clerk so we can read meters and um, 
throughout the building, take care of our master meters that we have to maintain throughout the valley. We have, this really shocks people, we have over 125 miles of main water line. And we have over 85 miles of main sewer line. Makes sense. It's a big area. It's a lot, a lot of pipe. Um, when I say they maintain it, so our sewer lines, we send a, we have a jet truck and they rod the lines out and then we video inspect them. And we do, t our target is 20%. Sometimes we get a little more, sometimes a little less, but we target 25% of our sewer collection system each year. Plus our hotspots. We have some spots that um, either they were not installed really well or there's industry there that has caused problems sometimes maybe it's fats oils and grease so yeah that was something that stuck with me from the hearing too you talking about the employees and their wages because i felt like if there's one reason aside from just ensuring that i continue to have clean drinking water that uh, one reason that i would like wholeheartedly support any increase is if it means that the employees are being paid adequately and uh, you know a, a wage or a salary that they can actually li live off of and raise a family off of and want to stay in living here locally and also want to stay working for the district long term i think you had kind of uh, made some mention of that that there is a cost to employee turnover to the district. There like, is, yeah. There's a cost to having to train new people. Um, you lose that that institutional knowledge if you have a, a high amount of staff turnover. And also if you consider the the potential cost of mistakes made by my new people who, who haven't been trained, I, I don't know, has anything like that happened? Have there ever been, you know, like costly mistakes because you've lost your, your veteran employees who who would have prevented something from happening, maybe? I'm sure there has, but I don't know right off the top of my head, you know, instance. Um, and we have lost people. Um, We've lost people who've only been here a few months, and we've lost people, well, I can't say lost. After you've been here so long, it's called a retirement, right? Mm -hmm. And we do have some people, you know, it comes to mind that we hire someone, we get them trained up, um, maybe they, working for us, they learn to operate a backhoe, drive a dump truck, that kind of stuff, and then they go work for UDOT, or they go work for Carbon County, because they pay more. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, if you want my opinion, <laughs> see, if you, if you compare, uh, so my, my water sewer bill is like 65 or so dollars a month, uh, in addition to the, if I'm paying, uh, what is it? 40, $50 a year, you know, it's like $8 a month taxes. So, uh, $75 or so a month is what I'm paying for water and sewer. Uh, my internet service is is like $90 a month. <laughs> um, water is the most precious resource there is. It's the source of all life. It just seems like so, you know, stupidly inexpensive for what it is. Um, anyway, I, I would happily pay quite a bit more. Maybe not like, you know, I wouldn't want to pay double, but yeah, right. no, I'd, I got I'd pay a hundred bucks a month for, for water and sewer. If I knew that all 33 of those employees were living on a thriving wage, able to support their families, we're going to stay here long-term invested in our community, and we're going to have a long career with the district, that would 
make me feel really good. Uh, I, I know most people probably, you know, a lot of people wouldn't be on board with that because, well, also like I, one of the, I made a comment at the meeting was just saying that, you know, I'm in a, coming from a place of privilege. Like I, I do quite well for myself. Um, I'm not like low income uh, or at risk of poverty. I also don't have any dependents. So it's easy for me to say like, right. yeah, I'd, mm-hmm. I'd be willing to pay a little bit more. And so I don't blame people who feel like, well, they just can't because they're on a fixed income. They're senior citizens living on social security, whatever the case is. So it, it is tough, but um, maybe that's, that's a, uh, so I, Based on that, I, I kind of also want to ask you about the, uh, you know, the water sewer fees themselves, because that was brought up as well. Like, um, is there a way to, you know, do something creative with those fees to offset the tax increase or to, I don't know, just come up with some kind of a custom solution that is maybe um, giving a little a little bit of uh, more more help to, to people who are, are struggling? Uh, I mean, I'll... Already it's controversial because people were saying that just because my property values half a million dollars, it's not fair that that means I should have paid two or three times as much as my neighbor whose property value is 150. Um, you know, just because I have a half million dollar property and I'm on sitting on 12 acres, you know, maybe they paid 40,000 for it 30 years ago. And it's, you know, the, the market forces have acted upon them to raise their property value but they were never able to afford um, that that kind of a tax increase. And so, yeah, it's like on the surface, it seems like, well, if you live in a big, fancy, expensive house or your property's worth a lot, you should be able to pay more. But that's that's not the case um, for a lot of people. So anyway, I'm just wondering, is like, are there any other, have you had any other thoughts, ideas? Has the board discussed other options, solutions? And uh Maybe connected to this question is another thing I wanted to ask you about in terms of uh, it was mentioned at the meeting. I didn't know this, that some properties are on meters and some aren't. I guess that would be some of these or maybe I'm wrong or maybe it was about the fact that some some uh, properties are are being taxed individually and versus the ones that are being served through the the city. I I could be confused. Okay, so, yeah, so. This property tax increase affected everybody, whether they have a meter from us or a meter from the city. Okay, it's just that. Yeah, it's some it, of the meters are are managed or or installed by you, and some through the city. Well, yeah. the city has their own. The cities, all three cities, have their own water system. Yeah. And so, so so the idea was floated out there. Well, what if we did an extra ten dollars a month per meter? Well. That would for for Price River Water, we have about twenty two hundred water ca- accounts. I think that's how it equates to. So you're talking, yeah, we could do that, and that would impact our customers, our retail customers. But do those same customers get any benefit because we supply water to Price City when they need it the most? The, or that we have built-in capacity for Helper City when it needs it the most? Um, is that not worth something? Uh, what about those who receive sewer service that, yeah, they, they get billed by the city, so they pay less. Should their property tax benefit 
be more because they live outside of the city limits or should it be equal based on the value of the city? And there are a lot of people who say, well, yeah, my house has its value going up. Well, okay, that means it's probably got square footage, curb gutter and sidewalk. It's not a double wide or a single wide out on a 10 acre parcel with a paved road, but no curb and gutter. So, um, you know, society does that all over the place. Society, yeah. you mentioned you don't, you don't have any dependents. I'll bet you you pay property tax to your carbon school district, mm -hmm. to the Utah school fund, to the charter school. All those are on your property tax. Why? Because it's part of society's benefits. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, okay. Is it unfair? I don't know. I, I sometimes wonder if it isn't as fair as possible. Those people who can't afford a home and so they rent. And there are some who choose not to afford a home. They choose to rent. I got that. But the people who own the property, they don't own the property because they're losing money. They own the property because they're making money. The rent payment is paying for the mortgage or, you know, it's paying off the bond or the note that they owe on the property. So I don't necessarily feel bad for a person who's got a high dollar value on, on their property compared to somebody who's got a low dollar value on their property. Mm -hmm. That's just me, but. Yeah. It does seem so complex though. Um, and very, very challenging to make everything totally fair and equitable when it's just a complicated situation and there are diverse conditions. I mean, just the difference between people living on, you know, quarter acre lots or whatever they are in price city limits versus uh, somebody like me in the unincorporated area. Who's, you know, there's, there's this little village that's like way out of the way um, versus people who are living on on big pieces of land. Um, yeah, it's, it's a tough call. Like, how do you make it fair? And I guess that's, that's just kind of like you said, why society in general and like taxes in general get to evolve to be so complicated over time is because people are always trying to figure out how do we make an exception for this and, you know, make it more fair here. So, uh, so, and that was why you may remember at the meeting, I brought forward a list of, ways that people can get a reduction in their property tax yeah based on that based on their age based on their status sometimes their, their income status uh, are they a veteran are they disabled veteran there's lots of different reasons why you can do they own a business is the business been impacted by something there's lots of reasons that you can get a reduction in your property tax people don't know about those kinds of things yeah, where's the best place to find, educate themselves about those options or, or where do they go? Um, either down to, I'd say the assessor's office. I'm, I walked in there and I had it in two minutes. The, the whole list. Yeah, they can, they can see the list of, of exemptions or options that they have and apply for something there. In well, person. they get the guidelines to apply, yeah. Okay. Yeah, Another option would be over across the hallway to the clerk's office. Okay. They can go to either of those places. Yeah. Good to know. Okay, so I I uh, just thought of something while, while we've been talking that I hadn't considered before that, uh, so I'm not sure how to ask this, just 
uh, just for fun. This is more for my own personal sure. interests. As I've been thinking about some of the other issues that we have here more broadly related to housing and water, the water shortage in general, um, I'm curious, like, so what, what would happen if, say, a big real estate developer came in and wanted to build a brand new subdivision somewhere where there's no water or sewer lines? Um, do they have to pay you to have your people go in and install all of that? How does that work? Okay. Um, so there is a process. Someone wants to come in and they want to put in a subdivision. And it doesn't matter if it's a five lot, 10 lot, 50 lot subdivision, whatever. First thing they're going to do is they're going to go to Carbon County and they're going to go to the planning and zoning. If the property is zoned correctly, great. If it's not zoned correctly, then they got to go through a zone change. But they're going to propose that they're going to be putting in a subdivision. That's going to trigger the county contacting us. And we're going to sit down with them and say, okay, let's say it's a 10 lot subdivision and they're going to be half acre lots somewhere where there's water and sewer. That they, Because it's less than one acre lots, they have to have water and sewer. The county development code says if you're over one acre lot and you're more than so many feet away from a sewer system, you can have a septic tank if your ground can handle a drain field. Hmm. That means not sloped. That means not too much rock. That means not too much clay. So there's lots of hoops to verify that. So we're just going to say the average subdivision, half acre to a third acre. Well, we're just going to stick with half acre, less than, less than an acre. Um, so that developer then is going to come to us. We're going to tell them all of our requirements. This is, includes what kind of pipe, what size of pipe, how often do you have a fire hydrant, what kind of meters are going to be required, um, all that kind of stuff. Um, tracer wire, uh, how much concrete you're going to put around the thrust block, all different kinds of things, pages and pages of specifications. They're going to pay a contractor to put it in. We're going to inspect it, make sure it's put in right. Hmm. Then when it's all in, they're going to deed it to us. So it's been their expense to get it put in and deeded to us. Now that has all been evaluated previously by an engineering firm that says this neighborhood where this is going to go in has enough water volume and water pressure and enough sewer capacity to accommodate it. And if all those things come together, then they can do their project. They need the water and sewer lines over to us. Um, I don't know what they do with the other utilities. I'm assuming they have to pay Questar or Dominion Energy, whatever it's called, to run the gas lines up there. Same with Rocky Mountain Power. And then, then they can start building their houses. But they also have to turn over water shares so that we have the capacity of water to treat. Um, we don't own the reservoir. Most people don't understand that. Yep. Yeah, the reservoir has 30,000 certificated acre feet of water. Municipalities own about 15%. The irrigators own the rest. Hmm. And so if you're going to be a large developer, you need to be collecting your water shares so that those can be turned over to us. So then we have the volume of water needed to supply these new homes. Because it's not fair to take water from you just because this guy's got a new house over here. Yeah. 
So they're, they would be responsible for purchasing and acquiring their own water shares. Correct. Which they then deed to you along with all the infrastructure. Yep. Okay. Uh, interesting. Makes sense. I'm learning so much today. Thank you. Uh, okay. So like, I don't know if you're familiar with the recently proposed subdivision in Kenilworth. Very much. That was okay. Uh, yeah, very much. Maybe you could tell me about that. I, I just kind of heard secondhand about it. Wasn't didn't go to any meetings or anything. That was uh, last year or the year before. I just had my hands full. I was wasn't paying attention. But uh, I guess it was. Um, they were proposing to build like a hundreds of new homes or something. And I don't I don't know how many, but some people were you know protesting and just wondering like, well, how does the is the existing infrastructure able to support that kind of an increase i mean the road for one thing just can can handle that much more traffic uh um but also you know the sewer and water mains that i would assume they tie into like they're gonna build this infrastructure for wherever the the homes are actually going to be built but they got to tie in somewhere and just like in your home you need like a one inch line that's going to go down to a half inch line and uh, if you were building a big industrial complex, you'd probably need a three-inch water line supply. So, you know, at that uh, at that level, um, is there a limit to to how much the existing infrastructure can accommodate? Or yes, there is. In fact, um, so and I'm going to try to pull these from memory because this has been going on for a couple of years. These these preliminary numbers, but uh, they were talking about. A little under 350, like 340 lots. But a portion of those was going to be better served by Helper City because they were on top of the hill in down in Spring Glen, not up in Kenilworth, in Spring Glen, uh, north of that, that cemetery that's mm -hmm. right there in the corner. And so naturally things would go towards Helper City. So there was a, a lot of thought to say, well, can these 40 lots be serviced by Helper City? So we weren't dealing with any of that. The rest of them, um, we said, okay, put in, you, you need to do the hydraulic analysis. And so they went to an engineering firm and they, they measured how much sewer flow is going down the main line, how much is coming out of Kenilworth, how does it in, impact the main line coming out of Helper, if the two flows are joined, uh, affect the area through Spring Glen, and, and down it went. And so they, they actually did a, a week-long flow test for four different locations. And for the majority of the time, the sewer line is almost empty. For the rest of the time, it's not even half capacity. That includes all of Helper. So an extra 300 homes shouldn't be a problem for the sewer line. Now they're gonna have to bring sewer line, sewer main across the Kenilworth Highway and over into that neighborhood and stuff like that. Um, the water system, what their phase one is proposing, they can accommodate with the current pump station and tank. But when they go beyond that, they've already got a site chosen, a proposal to put in a second tank and expand the pump station. So those are their costs to do as well. Okay. So um, there is a little section. So they've, they've trimmed down that first phase to, I want to say just under 40 lots trying to remember if my numbers are correct something like that and none of those lots are you know how you make the sharp turn to go into Kenilworth proper itself nothing is to the northeast 
northwest, sorry, northwest of that. Except if you go back behind the town, there's there would be a proposed road that goes up behind by the mailboxes as you go into town. Yeah. Um, and these are big lots. These are these are. I mean, I think most lots um, are fifth acre and maybe sixth acre lots in Kenilworth. They're not very big, and some people have taken two or three lots and and rebuilt and and put in bigger homes. And, um, but these are these are uh, anywhere from half acre to, to larger lots. Because the developer doesn't want to put in curb and gutter, and they don't need to do that if they're over half acre lots, according to the county's development code. If they get below half acre, then they have to put in the curb and gutter, which increases their cost. And so then there's a question of cost benefit. Yeah, got it. Wow, it's complicated. <laughs> well, we're coming up on an hour and a half, so I want to wrap this up soon. Um, I, so maybe I just have two more questions. One is related to this, and this maybe isn't really in your, your department, but just because you have this expertise and all this experience, you know, working in, in this domain, just curious of your, your thoughts on this in general. Because, again, as I'm thinking about this need for housing, especially affordable housing, and it seems like there's there's a limit to what can be done in City limits, I would think, but regardless, there's a lot of uh, land around in this unincorporated area that could theoretically be developed, but it does seem prohibitively expensive if you got to put in all this new infrastructure and and things that there's no way to make these uh, affordable homes for lower income folks. So I've, you know, I've talked to Keith Cox recently and gotten to uh, learn a little bit more about the self-help housing program that's being done through CERTA. So just thinking about growth, and I know Emory County is dealing with the same problem of lack of affordable housing and water shortages. So one like kind of harebrained idea or thought I had, and well, this is based off, my, my background is in architecture, it's what I went to school for, and I developed a, a big interest in sustainable design. And I went to, I don't know if you've ever heard of Earthships, or Earthship Academy is a design build school in Taos, New Mexico. Taos has an analogous climate and elevation conditions to to us here. It's really similar. And the Earthships have been developed kind of for that climate specifically. Uh, They call it the Greater World Earthship Community is this kind of experimental subdivision. They actually passed a law in, in the New Mexico legislature to allow for sustainable sustainable development test sites because they were having these same same challenges and needs. And so they were able to get this law passed to just have a place where they could try something a little bit different. So earthships are really cool because it's in this very rural area where there's no infrastructure and they're designed to be completely off-grid and self-sustained. So they run on solar power. They harvest rainwater with a you know metal sheet metal roofing that um, drains into large cistern tanks, channelizes it and collects it. That are that are buried in a berm of earth that also acts as insulation on the north side of the homes. The south side being glazed to accept passive solar gain. 
so they're just really clever buildings and i i lived in them when i, I went to their their did their course for three weeks and lived in these buildings toured a whole bunch of them and so ever since i've been here it's kind of been on my mind and i've always felt like if i can get uh, my own house my, my building that the store ever finished which uh, i will eventually do I've always kind of felt like that's the next thing I would most love to build here because th that's just what I love doing. I'm, I'm a builder. Um, I would love to try to build an Earthship as kind of a prototype, uh, like a just a you know an example of what's possible here. Uh, I, I wonder if you know people would be receptive to those ideas and maybe trying something a little bit different. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on that and if that seems like an option. Um, in these areas where it just wouldn't be financially viable to bring out this infrastructure would you be interested to see something like that would you support something like that a, a experimental home or like small subdivision that was where the homes were designed to collect their own water and treat their own wastewater on site sure um i am intrigued Let's put it that way, by those who um, want to put that technology into place. There's a few barriers in the state of Utah. I don't know. I, it used to be that you it was against code that you could collect your own rainwater. I don't know if it's stealers or not. They were talking about changing that. But those are the kinds of things that have to be changed. You know, if, if it's if it's codified, well, then it's a no no a non-starter. You've got to you got to get the powers that be to change that. But I also remember, again, you know, I grew up in Price. I've lived here all my life. Um, not too well. I guess it's been a few years ago. They built over on the east side, northeast part of town. They built some twin homes, some townhomes. Didn't sell well. They, in fact, they had a whole bunch of planned development going. And they built like the first four sets. So they had about eight homes. The mindset of the people said, no, we don't want to share a space. We don't want to share a common wall with another family. We want to have six feet or eight feet between the homes and, and a fence and be able to, you know, walk clear around our house. And we want a such and such size yard. And, but those mindsets are changing a little bit. Um, maybe it's a generational thing. I don't know. It's a cultural thing, I'm sure. Um, and perhaps it's also a little bit of an economic thing. You know, you've got this, well, I'll, I'll use you, your generation, right? Um, you're going to have a family, but maybe you're going to, instead of having four kids, you're going to have one child, maybe two. Um, in Utah, you know, the, the culture has been for years and years, large families, my family had seven, but I've only got four. And, you know, the next generation may only have two or one. And, and worldwide, that's that's kind of the norm is families are shrinking down. Um, but being able to capture power, generate your own, capture water, wastewater, that I think is a um, an area that I would really be really interested in knowing about because well, I guess number one I started here at the wastewater plant in pressure for water I've been here 39 years but had to start somewhere and 
knowing the process of what it takes to purify the water back to a level. I don't know what that technology looks like, but I'd be interested in knowing it. So to say that I'm for it, I don't know yet. Mm-hmm. But I'm willing to look at it, definitely. Yeah, you bet. Awesome. Okay. Thanks for humoring me. Yeah. Well, no, it's it's not just humory. It's <laughs> yeah. it's I'm intrigued. Yeah. Based on the technology. Yeah. Thanks for I guess willing to take it seriously. Yeah. Because I think some people just I don't know wouldn't uh, at face value. It just sounds too too weird. Well, so many of our society, and, I, and it's not just Utah. It's you can drive anywhere in the West, um, and you can see. Okay, here's the streets, right? All the homes are, you can pick four or five different styles of homes, but everybody in the subdivision has one of those four or five different styles. Every lot is a quarter acre, a fifth acre, a third acre, whatever it is. And everybody drives a a Ford or, or whatever. That's the way society is. And to make that change, it takes a little bit of ingenuity. Yeah. You can't force it on the society, but you can change it one mind at a time. Okay. Well, last question. Uh, do you have any thoughts on the future of the district? Uh, do you have a, a vision for the future? Anything that you'd like to see happen? Any investments you'd like to see made? Improvements to the infrastructure? Uh, what are you What are you seeing as you look ahead? Um, Carbon County is named Carbon County because it, in the early days, it relied on coal. Carbon being the main component of coal. My mom was born in a coal camp. My grandfather worked in a coal mine. My parents did not. They both went to college. One was a pharmacist, one was a nurse. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, But I've recognized over that time that if we're going to be moving away from coal, we're either going to be physically moving away from Carbon County or we're going to have to bring in some kind of a other industry to take its place. Um, and it can't be solar. I mean, solar is great, but you can't really work in solar. You could work as an installer on people's homes, but once the solar field's in, there's not much maintenance to do. There's not much work to be done for the next 15 or 20 years. Um, so I'm intrigued again by those who propose to use the resources of the carbon to make carbon fiber. And I know there are facilities that are trying to do that. Um, I was a big fan when they started putting in the coal bed methane wells. Um, I thought that was interesting to have directional drilling, fracking, um, it's just a way to pull those energies out of the soil, out of the earth itself, that we can then use for ourselves. Um, I'm really frustrated, though, that our government doesn't like us to use coal. And so we mine coal and we ship it over to foreign countries and they burn the coal. Because the, the earth is the earth, mm-hmm. right? If, for example, if China burns so many million tons of coal every year, it pollutes the earth just the same as if we burned it in Utah. There's not a lot of difference. If we mine precious metals or steel or whatever or refine it in China, well, the same effects happen in the world, just not in Utah. 
So if we're going to be energy independent, if we're going to be non-coal, um, we're going to have to find some other industry to make this place live or else there's not going to be a lot of us left around. Not everybody can be a government official, a school teacher, you know, a store clerk. Right. Got to have some industry. Great answer. Thank you so much for talking, Jeff. That's, that's all I have. Uh, you taught me a lot. This was very educational, and I really appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you for coming, for your questions. They're good, thoughtful questions. I appreciate it. Yeah. All right. Have a good night, everybody.